Hey, welcome back to Say Your Story. I'm Dean Stevens. Great to have you back. Great to always hear a little bit of Bullets Benign. That's Charleston Band. It's our house band, even though, yeah, they're not in the house. Well, our guest today, one of the strongest, most courageous, most committed humans in my life, Nancy Shipman, says her story as we get closer to International Overdose Awareness Day. It's a global event held on the 31st of August each year. Its purpose is to raise awareness of overdoses and reduce the stigma of drug-related deaths and acknowledge the grief felt by family and friends. Nancy lost her son to an overdose six years ago. That loss was felt far and wide in our community. Nancy's commitment ever since Creighton's death has been felt far and wide across our state. It is an honor to introduce you all to Nancy Shipman as she says her story. Today's guest is an old friend. When you say old friend, would it be better to say a friend that I've known for a long time? That sounds better. Yeah? Um, and I love how the ripple effect here, because one of the very first coaches I ever dealt with uh, was a guy named Coach Stedman at Hanahan High School. And just awesome then, as he is today. And his daughter, Nancy, is joining us right now. Good to see you. Good to see you. It's always good to see you. I feel the same. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that... When I thought about who I needed to have come in this week and to talk to, um, it always kept coming back to you because of this month and the importance uh, of, of what's going on uh, in this in this time and uh, and what you guys are going to do at the end of the month and how many people it's impacted and affected. And we're talking about Overdose Awareness Month. And, um, you know, I've always appreciated and um, your openness and your raw truth, you know, I mean, if I'm going to go all the way back, I will. I will tell you, um, and I don't know if I've ever said this to you, but probably because we talk about everything, is I remember seeing a little blurb in the paper, and I think, I think the very first time you shared about Creighton uh, and his overdose and his death, and you shared it publicly was maybe at the old Liberty. I remember seeing a picture. I think it was in the Moultrie News. And it was a small group, and you were sharing, and it wasn't long after he passed. No, it was and month. right, yeah. it was about a month. And I thought, oh my God, this woman, right? Mm -hmm. I can't say exactly what I thought, but I was like, the amount of courage to do this right off the rip, mm -hmm. you know, that always, I don't know. That's and, and that's you know that led into uh, uh, the story that we did together in the Jefferson Award piece. Um, so do you remember that? Do you remember why so quickly? Um, yeah, that was, to be honest, if it was up to me, I probably wouldn't have, but it was my daughter. Oh. Um, and it all started with that last day, July 17th, 2016. Um, it was my daughter that looked at the boys and I and said, um, no one needs to walk this walk alone like Creighton did, and we did. And we need to make a promise to him to share our truth and our story. And uh, as a mother, I did not know what that looked like. So um, so I said, okay. And then within a week, we had an opportunity to share our story. And um, my daughter was the one that said, this is right. So she and I, within a month, shared our truth with Creighton. Scary, but she was brave. So I followed suit. <laughs> Those damn kids. I know it. They push <laughs> us, for sure. Um, so that, that talk started this truly in your life, this ripple effect. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, let's, let's, if people 
aren't aware and, and again I'll share this too because it's it's part of it's part of the story of, of our story right. is that Creighton went to school with my oldest son Jack at Wando he's a 2015 graduate he was on the stage that day when all the boys were signing their letters of intent to go play their college sports um, I still have those pictures I do too you know special day <clears throat> special day and um, you know Creighton's Creighton's story is probably not unlike the many stories that you hear today you comfortable going back on how it how it started where it manifested sure because i think that's important, it's important part it's part of a story right mm -hmm. um so creighton as a freshman in high school was playing in a lacrosse tournament at duke and um you know you play games and you're going to get cleated but there was nothing to show that there was an injury rather than just a bruise and within weeks of that he started complaining of major pain we went to a number of orthopedists, and um, no one really knew what it could be. And uh, we had an MRI, and we were waiting on the results. And Christmas Day, Creighton was screaming and crying with a huge cast on his leg, waiting for um, what the answer was. And I knew this wasn't normal. And I called a friend saying, this isn't right. It was the first time that he had taken pain pills, because the pain was excruciating. Mm. Um, my good friend said, get him to MUSC ER immediately. And right. um, we got there and there was an amazing surgeon that took him into surgery. And, and he came out and said, if we would have waited 24 hours, he could have lost his leg or life. And it's something called a Brody's abscess. We all have like bacteria in our nose. And when you have an injury, it sometimes can follow the bloodstream to that site. And so Creighton had bacteria eating the size of a golf ball hole in his bone. Mm. So um, so he recuperated, went through high school, everything okay, did great, met his goal, getting a scholarship, and then everything changed in college. Um, freshman year, he uh, right after Christmas, everything changed. Grades, attitude, appearance, everything. He came home after spring semester grades were better but his attitude and his isolation was not appearance and changed a little bit everything didn't look like himself um at all and uh what changed everything is that we had a he had a big explosive meltdown mm. asking him to move a car and then all hell hit the fan and um I was in the process of taking the other three to school and throwing things, screaming, you name it, and that was not my child, and I knew something was going on mm -hmm. that he couldn't control because he would have never acted that way. So um, I had to ask him to move out, and um, I said, when you're ready to let me know what's going on or to get help, then we can do something about what's going on, but this is not okay. We're not safe. Your sister and brothers aren't safe. So about a month later, he said, um, I need to talk to you. And I met him, and he said, I, I need help. I'm dealing with something a lot bigger than me, and um, I need your help. And so I gave him a phone number of a place that had been trusted in the area. Mm -hmm. um, a rehab facility. Yes, in Georgia that lots of people in Charleston are very familiar with over many decades. And um, handed him the phone, and he made the call. And that all sounds bizarre about how do you know the place to call? I only knew one friend that had dealt with something that I was dealing with. Again, I think I was dealing with what I thought was Xanax, maybe. Maybe drugs this, or mental health. Mm -hmm. And so she is the one that directed me to this place. Creighton called, and um, he 
he called me back in after he hung up and he said, uh, I'm going there tomorrow. They'll take me tomorrow to the treatment center. And he had never done treatment. We've had no problems with police, nothing. Right. But what had transpired a month ago was not my child at all, empty. And uh, I said, okay. And um, I didn't ask him. A lot of people often say, well, did you want to know why he's going to treatment? Like, what was the drug? I didn't care. I knew yeah. that he was ready to have help. And um, I looked at him, my 19-year-old son, and you have perspective with time, right? And uh, I said, I'm not going to share this with anybody. This is your walk. Yeah. And um, he gave me that goofy smile that he gave me. He's like, it's okay. I've already shared it on Instagram and Facebook because if I'm going to get better, Mom, you are too. Yeah. And uh, he's like, I just want my life and my family and my friends back. Let me ask you this question because I think at the, like at this part of the story, people may be asking these questions, right? Like where did you find that? Because this again, this is not like in a it's not on a playbook. No, I wish it was. Right? Yeah. There's um it's much like parenting. There's no parenting playbook. Mm -mm. Um but where did you find that guidance and that to to take that route? You know, first of all, just take that route to say you have to move out of this house this behavior is not this mm -hmm. is not okay, right? Mm -hmm. I mean that's tough parenting right there. It's the worst, hardest. It's the hardest. And in, in this day and age I don't see parents parent like that very mm -hmm. often. You don't want to have to parent all. that way. I would have never thought I would have. Right? right. I didn't have a choice. Yeah. Um, but what helped me get to that place, to be honest, and it's my story, yeah. is um, my first marriage. Mm. Um, my first husband struggled with alcohol, and that's all I knew it to be. Um, I later found out there were substances involved because he traveled often, and if it wasn't for... Um, Al-Anon, somebody mm -hmm. sent me to Al-Anon, if it wasn't for Al-Anon, and a therapist and educating myself that um, this is a disease. It would look differently. I know that that prepared me for Creighton. And, um, you know, I often get asked, because how that story finished, and not trying to jump back and no, forth, you're good. but when Creighton went to treatment, he was there 30 days, and I thought he was going to be fixed. So you only know what you know until you know different. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I thought treatment fixed people, and that's when I found out, um, again, and, you know, when he's at treatment, you can't call, you can't visit, it's all through letters, and um, I had no idea how he got to this place. Again, I go back to in high school, no problems with police, no, you know, no drugs I knew of, but he didn't live under rocks, so if there were, you know, experimenting in, in steps in a direction I wouldn't have approved of, he was on restrictions, but we didn't have any red flag until later and um one of the letters the week before family week is when he said um i want you to feel prepared uh that um my my drug of choice is heroin but i don't say no to anything and mm. to be honest it is seared in my mind like the day that i had to ask him to move out and that day when i read that it was pouring down rain outside it was july 3rd and i um I immediately started sobbing my eyes out because what I knew of heroin was um, was scary, yeah. and I didn't see it as a 19-year-old boy, which made no sense to me. How in the hell did he get to heroin? Um, but again, you're having to write letters. Um, when we went for family week is when I found out it stemmed from that surgery when he was 14 years old. Um, he said something turned on in my brain 
and I could never turn it off. And when I was in college, um, it turned on and it was bright and there was no going back. So I had no idea that taking pain medication for a bacteria, eating the bone in your leg, turns something on in his brain. And they, they people will describe that as kind of like that warm blanket feeling. That's right? what I've learned. And that's what, that's what the pain pill that's the feeling the pain pill creates, mm -hmm. and heroin mir mirrors that same feeling. It's identical. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you go out for family week. If people don't know, um, and I've been a part of family week with my father back in 1990, and the family is invited to come to rehab, and um, it, it is far from a vacation. It is not <laughs> It's anything not at all. You would not wish it upon no. your worst enemy, but what it does, it does – it opens up everything. If you're going to be transparent, right? I mean, you could go in to family week and BS your way through it. Right. Um, you'd be called on it. Yeah. Right. In a hot minute. In a hot minute. Um, and, and, but that's where everything's kind of thrown out of the table and the family kind of learns everything that's been going on. And, um, the person in recovery, you know, is able to share what they need to share. It's a safe place mm -hmm. and, and you kind of move along and, First couple days, pretty good? It was great the first couple days until it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. It was when his plan came into place, right? And um, for Creighton, his plan was to come back and start a IOP, which is an intensive outpatient program. And again, I had no idea what that meant, but mm -hmm. I knew that was the plan. And then when it was time for school to start, to go back to college, it would kind of evolve when he went to school. Um, about day two is when he's like, but I'm not doing that. You know, I'm not going to do that. I don't need this. I'm not going to go see a shrink or a therapist. I'm okay. I'm fine. I don't need that bullshit. And how in the hell am I going to be 21 not having a sip of alcohol? I'll be 21. And I started freaking out on the inside because um, this plan had been, when you go to treatment, and this is what I've learned, you work on a plan that's individualized that, um, that supports your recovery. And that was a promise, you know, we go back to when Creighton first said he's going to treatment, you know, I want my life and family back and I want you to support me in this. And for me as a mother, um, because being a mother and being an effective parent can look entirely different. Mm -hmm. And so supporting Creighton in this change of mind and decision and shifting of plans is not supporting my son or supporting my reco his recovery. Um, so when it came time to leave, he point blank said, I'm not doing any of that. I'm going to do what I want to do, how I want to do it. I love you, but this is about me. And what I learned in that short amount of family week is that it's about us all. You know, when someone mm -hmm. is struggling, the family is also struggling. Yeah. And, um, and this was the second most unnatural thing as a mother that I had to do was say, well, then you can't come home with me. Right. Because the natural thing is to be like, okay, I'll take you home and... And in my head, I'll fix you. You know, you've done work here. I'll keep you. You'll go to work with me. I'll keep you in your room. It'll be safe. I'll feed you. But that's making me feel better, not addressing why he even went to treatment and that promise. And uh, it was the hardest thing that I'd ever had to say that you can't come home with me. Mm -hmm. And um, and he was like, what are you, you know, very irate. And I said, this is not supporting you and your recovery and what you asked me to do. So, um so he left with a bag on his back and um, walked out of rehab, walked out of rehab, which I later learned is very common. Is it really? 
in that last week? When it's t- when when a family oh. says that I'm not supporting, mm. or I don't want to say very common, but it's something that's typical of some. Mm. And I was reassured they're like, Creighton's a good kid. He knows, you know, he won't stay out there. He'll come back. We always, you know, we always have people following and checking up on them when they're out. He'll come knocking on the door, ring the doorbell. And so I was scared to death, but I knew in my heart that if I took him home, it's not supporting his recovery, right? Yep. So um, I drove back to Charleston, and uh, I could not be in the same town he was, not knowing what he was going to do. Right. So, um, to be honest, I had nightmares for two nights that he was going to be a John Doe, because when someone overdoses, that's what I knew at the time, that they toss them. And um, that Friday morning, I got a knock on my door, which was July 15th, and um, it's a policeman, and you would think you'd be scared to death, and it's the craziest thing. Walking down the stairs, I see a policeman in, you know, on the right side of the transom of the door, and I was relieved, right? Because I've yeah. been having nightmares. I opened the door, and I immediately just word vomited. I'm Nancy Stedman Shipman, mother to William Creighton Shipman, 1197. That's bizarre, right? That's crazy. And while I'm saying that, I'm looking at this like really young policeman, looks like Creighton's age, and I'm mm-hmm. looking to the right, and his police car's there, and I'm expecting to see Creighton in it. Again, he's never been in a police car, but that's what, I mean, it's like I can feel it now. I was looking hopeful. He wasn't there, and um, I learned that policemen don't know why they're at your door, except to tell you what they're supposed to tell you, and he said, um, you're Creighton Shipman's mother, yes do you know this phone number? And he showed me a number, and I was like, I don't know that number. Um, I called it, and it was an ER in Columbia, Mm. South Carolina, and um, uh, Creighton had been brought in at about 4.30 in the morning. He was somewhere, and 911 was called, and um, he had a faint pulse and no heartbeat. And um, they said I needed to get up there. They didn't tell me how dire it was until I got got up there. And um, it was a very difficult 48 hours, and that the day after, that Saturday, is when they did the test to see if there was blood flow or oxygen mm-hmm. in the brain, and there was not. And so that July 17th was the last day that we were with Creighton, and um, it was a really hard day. And uh, But that was the day the promise was made. Yes, that was the day the promise was made, and I didn't know what that was going to be. Didn't know what it was going to look like. You just knew there was a promise made that you would. Because she, my daughter was right. No family should feel how we felt. Yep. Nobody like Creighton should feel how he felt alone. Mm. I think also, too, people are going to ask this question, right? Is that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. right? The yeah. feeling is, is that when uh, at rehabs, they'll take the patient to outside meetings. Mm-hmm. Right. And do we feel like that's where he was introduced, met somebody who had drugs? No, what I later found out it was his drug dealer prior to that. Um, he didn't have his phone when he left. Right. But um, somehow the drug dealer got to him mm-hmm. and picked him up, took him to his house in Columbia. Mm. And um, he's the one that called 911. And, um, you know, it's something to where I can be extremely angry and bitter about that person. But I also know my nightmare didn't come true. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, when I did get to the hospital, I left this part out, is that um, he had a wristband on it said John Doe on it. Mm. And as soon as I walked in, you know, I was like, this is William Creighton Shipman. And they're like, we know. We just haven't changed it. I'm like, you need to change it. Yeah. So I wasn't going to give um, the power to the disease or that individual. The thing is, is 911 was called. Maybe not as quick as it should have been, but right. 911 was called. And um, I'm not like many families that I've experienced to where they didn't get to say their goodbyes and they didn't get to see their spouse or their child. Um, that's something that I'll be forever grateful for, regardless of who made that call, right. is that I got to say goodbye to Creighton. Mm -hmm. You said goodbye to your son, but you also said hello to this new journey and part of Creighton's house, uh, part of Wickup, Carolina, and that from the, the day that we met, um, the day we did that story, um, there was no question that this was going to be a, the, end, the end result for for your new journey, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think it's important because when we go back and look five, six years later now, um, all that you have done in this community and the resource that you provide for families, uh, I don't even, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's numbers somewhere on a spreadsheet of how many people right. that you've touched and the number of people you've called, but you go back to Ripple, there's no way of knowing right. how many right. have been impacted by what you guys do. Talk about the genesis of Wake Up Carolina and Creighton's house um, and where you are today. Um, so I did not have a dream to start a nonprofit. I wouldn't have started a nonprofit <laughs> because I don't know what I would have done, but I, if, if it would have been my if it would have been my choice, I probably would have curled up. Mm -hmm. And um, That's an option, by the way. It is. It is, but healing can't start when you're curled up. And so this promise, I think, also kept our family alive. And what we learned is that as soon as we shared our story in that August, my daughter and I, um, all of these calls and messages and emails came, um, a family sharing their story. And that's also what kind of helped start this movement is that not only did we make the promise that um, no one should walk this walk alone, but you shouldn't have to lose someone you love to feel supported, mm -hmm. you know? And um, so it started out at first with those of us starting a conversation, right? We were going out sharing our story, sharing numbers nationally, because you don't really feel those numbers until it's personal, because your person is now one of those numbers. Um, we were in a true crisis, nationally, state, locally. So we started out talking. And then what I started seeing, um, and again, I didn't know what this was gonna look like, you know, what I started seeing is people raising their hands sharing their own stories. Um, when we were talking to school administrators, raising their hand saying, I have students that I'm helping feed and support because they're taking care of their siblings because their father struggles with drugs. I'm taking care of my sister because, you know, my mother no longer can help because she struggles with alcohol. So we're starting this conversation, but 95 or 90 to 95% of everywhere we talk people raising their hands, sharing their story, asking for resources. And so um, from that, I went to this national conference and I'm not a conference girl and I <laughs> didn't have the money to go to it, but I was thankful for a county agency having a corner that un unfortunately couldn't attend. And somehow I got the call and they said, do you wanna go? And I'm like, and I had no extra money. They're like, don't worry, this is part of, this is part of the ticket. You get to go, all of it will be paid for, just show up. 
it changed my life. That's when I learned um, what organizations and agencies and counties were doing across the country for harm reduction measures. Um, that were not being done here. At the time that I knew it to be. Narcan, I didn't understand Narcan prior to going to that conference. I didn't believe in Narcan. You know, and that's why I always share with anybody, you only know what you know until you know different. What I knew at that time is Narcan only helps somebody come back to life to go use drugs again. Well, that's pretty simple, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's not. It's a life-saving tool as long as they're fresh. There's hope. Changed my life. I'm like, we've got to get Narcan with first responders. So we've got to get Narcan in the schools. Um, we've got to get Narcan into as many people's hands as possible. And not only Narcan, but educated. So that, I met an amazing, amazing group about young adults in recovery doing really cool stuff that young adults do in recovery or not in recovery. It's what they do, fun events. I'm like, great, we've loved that. So I came back with all these ideas and we changed, we evolved into something that I didn't, it, it wasn't happening in our state. It was, um, I changed it, like our pillars, to awareness, education with hope and recovery for young adults, individuals, and families. And um, that started this thing that my kids came to me. It was about a year anniversary of Creighton's death. And they're like, you know, if Creighton would have come back to Charleston, he still would have wanted to do all those really cool things he liked to do. Mm -hmm and there's no place for him to do it. Right. So that was that dream of Creighton's house, um, a place where you're, um, where you're supported without substances with people your age with similar interests that are also on their way in their path to recovery. So it's a great idea. I'm not in recovery. I'm a family member in recovery. I'm not a young adult. So we sat on it. And then I met this amazing woman who is a therapist in the area now. Back then she wasn't. She had that unique experience of being... Um, you know, in her 20s in recovery and had helped start other college recovery programs and worked with other young adults in recovery. And we were having a conversation over coffee and she said, I'd love to do that. I have this experience and it felt right. That's what I've learned if, if I'm making a decision, as long as it's not in fear or being impulsive, it's the right decision. So I gave her my family's dream to start this Creighton's house. Mm -hmm. And so that was our first program and we still did not have a space. We were using donated space from the town for those young adult meetings. A friend donated like a broom closet for us to have a desk and four people worked in <laughs> and, and it's funny to me how we got work done in that space. Mm -hmm. um, but it went from there to partnering with the Charleston Center Mount Pleasant Police Department for the um, state's first community Narcan training and distribution. I think it's important to talk about how important Mount Pleasant Police has been as well. Right? Yeah, because um, there's agencies who may not want to play in the sandbox. Because why should they? They're already busy enough, right? Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's educating. Um, at that time, Chief Ritchie was the chief of police, and I went to him. He was at that breakfast when we first talked in August, and then I went to him. And I said, I lost Creighton. I grew up in this community. I know you love our community. We've got to do something because so many people are dying. And we had this organic conversation where we both were like, we don't know how this is going to look, but let's grow together. They grew right alongside of us. Um, they're the ones that donated the meeting space for our young adult meeting. They're the ones that housed us to do the first community Narcan distribution. Um, they're also the ones that... Um, when we have had people that are wanting to detox and there were no beds in this area because we're very limited, not only in this area, but the state. 
they were able to work with us to get these people to detox in other parts of the states. They drove them for us. And the people that we were helping looked at us like, holy crap, this guy's and this woman's coming to take me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you're not in trouble. Trust me. Yeah. They're with us. So I have to say that um, if it wasn't for the community partners that we've worked with and partnered with, um, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. All of it. Um, and it's a true testament, you know, it's true about, you know, removing barriers and bridging gaps. There have been so many barriers and gaps in the education and awareness with substance use disorder and recovery that um, you have to get to know who's doing what in the community. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the first things we did in that first year and a half is I don't, I being our organization, I don't want to do something that's being done in our community. If someone's doing it, then let's partner and lift each other up because yep. that, that makes a tapestry. I mean, it might <clears throat> sound hokey, Mm-mm. but um, I didn't want our organization to be another broken part in the system because there's so many broken pieces. And in order to be strong and sustainable, and we owe it to the community, you have to work together and find where you can help one another and admit when we don't know what it looks like. Right. So um, Mount Pleasant Police and Charleston Center Huge. have been crucial in our um, start, and even now. You know, the conversations that we had, and it's so true, is that um, you become, right, you might as well just have a red phone on your desk, <laughs> like Chief Gordon. <laughs> I don't know about that. Right, and it just, it just doesn't even ring, it just flashes red. Mm-hmm. Because everybody, because I share this with people, is that if there is, if, if a family is in crisis with a child, mm-hmm. right, um, they call you. Mm-hmm. They do. Mm-hmm. And not just like one or two. No. You know? And um, I've always had a great respect of you because of that. Um, you know, and so one of the conversations that we had early on is that you know, you're experiencing families with 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds who are going to rehab who are having uh, substance issues. And they don't feel comfortable going to a 12-step group, mm-hmm. right, at 14, 15, 16. Mm-hmm. And that's understandable. And so that's where you created this space as well um, for these young people to come together in this peer support group, which I think, you know, and again, there's a million different ways to skin a cat. Right. And... Um, and I think, you know, as, as you look back and you see that first meeting at that little place over in the old village, right, right where you had yes. we had our first meeting yes. with Creighton's house, um, you've got space now and you've got everything going on every night taken Monday through Friday. Correct. And I would love for you to talk about what happens there on Monday nights, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Friday. So, yeah, we, we have 13 programs and services now and um, we have a small space on Coleman. Um, and Monday nights, we have, once a month on Monday nights, we have a Living With Loss group. It's an amazing group for mothers who have lost a child to all different ways. But unfortunately, because of this crisis and epidemic in our community, mothers that have lost a child to a substance, um, there's a lot of us in that group. And um, I didn't know we needed that group until I thought it was just my experience going to grief and loss groups. There was a stigma. They felt really bad that I lost my 19-year-old until I shared how, and then um, there was immediate judgment. So that was a shock to me, and I thought it was just me, but then when the phones continued to ring and emails and messages, um, this Facebook Living With Loss group transitioned to once a month at our space. So we have that once a month. It's the um, first Monday of every month. 
Tuesdays at 4.30, we have mothers gathering. It's mothers who have been touched by substance use through their young adult child, adult child, and their child could have no interest in recovery, are in recovery. Um, they don't know where their child is or that they shine from above. So it's, it's a mother that continues to heal her heart um, in this process of the disease of substance use disorder. So we have that 4.30 on Tuesdays. Wednesdays at seven o'clock, we have dad to dad and it's similar format, dads that have been touched by substance use disorder from their children. And we always say, whether we birthed them, adopted them, fostered them, they came into our life some other way. Um, a parent is a parent, it can look many ways. So it's a dad's group at seven. Um, Thursdays is the young adult group, um, Creighton's house, they call it CH. Um, I didn't name it that. Mm -hmm. I mean, in my heart I did, but they named it that because they said if we're gonna tell our friends where we're going, we like to say we're going to a friend's house or we're going to Creighton's house. So that's mm -hmm. why they took that. So that's um, Thursdays at seven o'clock. What do those numbers look like? For the young adult group? Yeah, age group? Um, 14, right now we're seeing 14 to 17, 18, but the range is 14 to about 23, high school to college age. Yeah. Um, the most we've had is about 27, and that's at capacity in our tiny space. On average, we have between 11 and 14. We have... Um, that's amazing. And it's their own. It's their own. It's their own. They make it their own. They eat pizza. Um, they also have a night in or a night out. They go do normal, cool things that they want to do with people that they know will support them. Um, last month, they played some app game. I don't know what it is. I'm too <laughs> old, but they liked it, and they had um, Moe's cater it. Um, and so they do that night out once a month. And Fridays, we have an all-recovery group for adults at 6.30. Um, our mothers started doing nights out. What I'm seeing consistently is the connection, and all of our groups mm. want to have more nights to do things or more afternoons. In our space, we're full, and I hate even saying that, but we have a staff of four, um, two full-time, two part-time, and our meetings are jam-packed, and at times we've had to have people stand up, and what really pushed us this past year into, because this is a scary place to grow. You want to grow, right? At first, it was like a face step. We will get a space. Hopefully, they'll come. Well, they come, and it's needed. You know, it's a literal and figurative door. And now we're jam packed. And if someone has enough courage to find us and get up the steps and walk in the door, it's tough not to have a seat, right? Yeah. Um. So that's what pushed us, being full, and then, uh, I'm gonna try not to get emotional, but losing five young adults. In June and July, one was very close to us that mm -hmm. we adore, and it was a game changer. I realized we're still in that crisis, and it was due to hit home, right? Because the disease of addiction or substance use disorder is if we can catch it before it happens, if we can help you when it gets in the middle, like as a substance use, misuse, use disorder, all the way to treatment, all the way to death, we get that. And not many people do that full spectrum. They want to do prevention, preventing first use only. That's why we don't use that word. Use awareness. We want to make you aware before you have that first use all the way through until the end. Um, it was a game changer losing him. And so I realized I was scared to grow myself as an organization that it was time to take that leap. Yep. 
make more space for those that come in that call. And um, so we put it out there. It's time to get a larger space. And I've started banging on doors and phone calls and and things are things are changing. And they will. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Because you would have never dreamed five or six years ago that you'd be sitting here. No. With a set of headphones on. Not at all. At home radio. No. Live, by the way. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> but I'm thankful. I'm thankful to be here sharing. But it's... Um, you know, and I and uh, I'm so grateful for our relationship, and you know that. Um, and we have awesome conversations um, about raising children, <laughs> right? And, and how we stay sane, mm-hmm. right? And the fears, and how we don't live in that fear, because that's the, you know, that's the crusher for us. Yeah, it's not living in it. No, we live in that fear. Nope. Um, and you know, and again, I'm able to. Um, learn from you of what's going on in our community because mm-hmm. again you're that first phone call mm-hmm. right and it's not getting better Mm-mm. you know I mean the fentanyl is killing people left and right and it doesn't matter what what drug you're taking right whether it's a pressed pill mm-hmm. right whether it's cocaine mm-hmm. heroin Xanax right mm-hmm. crack it's in every single one every single one we're seeing overdoses um, from our experience we're seeing close double the triple the numbers we did last year in overdoses in the Tri-County area. We are seeing, um, I hate to say numbers because number numbers are our life, numbers are our family, the rings of friends around them. We're seeing the deaths, we're seeing the overdoses, we are seeing a, a double number of people saying, I'm ready for treatment, help me find a spot, help me get help, I don't have insurance. It's um. We're seeing something we've never seen before, and I know that you know 2020 came out, and we all were impacted in so many different ways. But 2020, we grew 375 percent. We grew in need, we grew in volume. Last year, we grew that much and more. And those numbers are really hard to finalize locally and statewide, but they're all coming out in October. But what we're seeing this year is double last year's which makes it look like 2020 was nothing when we all know 2020 was a game changer and um we're on fire our area is on fire people are dying left and right people are overdosing at rates we've never seen before and that is with this community distribution and law enforcement having narcan on hand um and there are a lot of families that are still grieving the loss of their person, whether it was a spouse or a child or a brother or sister, in silence. Mm-hmm. And that's a slow death. I know that from experience. You have to, you have to heal. Our person would not want us curling up on the sofa and not living anymore. But it's 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 frightening out there. What I can say when we talk about the numbers are scary because they're double last year. Um, the need for empowered people calling us saying, hey, I want to get trained in Narcan. Can I get trained in Narcan? You know, my husband is on pain medication as prescribed, but I know that I need that. My insurance does not cover Narcan at the pharmacy. Because you can get, I go back to Narcan because it is an easy tool and resource to prevent an overdose death. If someone is having an overdose, whether it's from prescribed medication or if it's from street substances, if you do not use Narcan, it is impossible to reverse an overdose. It is an easy thing to get trained and equipped with. 
Um, that's one first harm reduction measure. Another harm reduction measure is fentanyl testing strips. Um, you know, that if, if you're going to use a substance, and that's what's so important that we try to push out so much downtown and all the surrounding areas, um, if you are going to use a substance, test it first. We want you to live, we want you to breathe. Even if you don't call yourself someone that struggles with substances, you don't have to struggle. One pill can kill, one hit can kill, and um, if there are measures out there, come to us. We'll give you free fentanyl testing strips. Charleston Center has them. Favor Low Country has them. They are everywhere. There is no judgment. We just want you to live. Mm -hmm. Do we condone what you're doing? I don't care what you're doing. I just want you to live. Right. Well, I love you. I love you. Thank you. And um, thanks for sharing. Because I, you know, I, uh, I don't think it can ever be shared enough. No. Truly. And um, you've lifted the lid, I think, on the stigma of talking about addiction and recovery. And, um, you know, I've always I've shared this story a million times that, you know, my dad got sober in 76 and we were dragged into an Alateen meeting um, and, you know, we came home and um, every time somebody would come over, we'd always have to hide the literature. Right. We had to hide the big book. Mm -hmm because we never wanted anybody to ever know, mm -hmm. right? And uh, all these years later, you know, we sit here on a live microphone and we talk about it. Exactly. Um, whether it's, you know, substance abuse, mental health, it's all connected. It's all connected. It's all connected. And um, just the ability and your decision, your family's decision to share Creighton's story, your story, your family's story, which is all of our story, mm -hmm. you know, has made a huge difference. And I'll tell you that every time I see you. Well... It's, it's a real thing. You know, it's a real thing. There is hope and recovery. Yep. It's possible. And it is. It happens. It is. And it does. Wake Up Carolina and the Mount Pleasant Police Department at Charleston Center will hold a Light the Way for Hope to remember those who have died from overdose. It's coming up on Wednesday night, the 31st, 7.30 at Mount Pleasant Memorial Waterfront Park. There will be a Narcan training session followed by a luminary ceremony at 8.30. For more resources on overdose prevention, you can visit wakeupcarolina.org. That's wakeupcarolina.org. Appreciate you joining us on Say Your Story. We're coming from The Ripple. Of course, it's our nonprofit incubator here in downtown Charleston. We are doing what we can to help out nonprofits right here in the low country. Our thanks again to Bullets Benign, and thanks to you for tuning in to Say Your Story. Have a great week, everybody. I'm Dean Stevens. We'll see you soon. Cause I'm finding my way back to you. Hey.